Well, uh, I've been kind of inspired by the Wednesday night classes. We're doing a pretty in-depth textual study on Wednesday night of Galatians. If you haven't been coming, you're missing something really good. So I hope that you'll start uh, joining us for that. And I've been inspired by our study of Galatians to kind of uh, pick elements of what we're studying uh, to create our sermon series here in the mornings. And so today, I hope you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. It's actually printed there, kind of in small print, but it's print, the whole chapter is printed there on your uh, handout this morning. And uh, you can follow along there, or you can turn to it uh, in your own Bible. And I actually had a different title for this during part of the time I was working on this sermon. I called it, When Things Get Ugly, because of the fight that happened between Peter and Paul. It's recorded in this chapter. Peter comes to Antioch, and um, he, he's behaving as he should behave. He's, he's having full fellowship with everybody who's a Christian. doesn't matter if they're Gentile background or Jewish background, he doesn't make a distinction in whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. He learned his lesson well on the day of Pentecost. God does not respect persons. God doesn't make that distinction anymore. And so Peter was happy to have complete fellowship with the Gentile Christians in the church at Antioch until, until some Brothers from the Jerusalem church came up, Jewish Christians, and Paul says they're false brothers. I don't think he means that they're necessarily not Christians anymore, but he says they're really teaching a false gospel here, a false truth. He says, and when they showed up, Peter stopped fellowshipping with the Gentile converts. He just withdrew from the table fellowship with them. And he began to eat only with the Jews, which is the Jewish custom before this time. And he said this this got so bad that a lot of people were following along in this play acting. That's what the word hypocrisy means. This play acting that Peter was doing, pretending he believed something that he didn't really believe. And even Barnabas, got swept up in this. And so Paul had to take a public stand. He said, I had to withstand Peter to his face when things get ugly. That was the working title. But I realize that's only kind of the symptom of what's going on in this chapter. So that's when I changed it to this, protecting our freedom. Why did this turn ugly for Paul, it's not just that Paul is a, you know, frothing, foaming at the mouth, uh, you know, just picking a fight at every turn. In fact, everything we know about Paul is that he's the opposite of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, look, I'm as flexible as I can be for the sake of the gospel. When I'm with the Jews, I'm kind of like a Jew. When I'm, when I'm with the Gentiles, I'm kind of like the Gentiles. When I'm with somebody who's strong in the law... I'm strong in the law. When I'm with somebody who's weak, I'm kind of weak. I'm trying to be all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. That's what Paul says. Over in Romans chapter 14, he explicitly says, do not pass judgment on each other based on what you eat. It seems like that 
contradicts what he does here in Galatians chapter 2 because he's mad at Peter about food matters. And he says in Romans, you know, stop doing that. Stop passing judgment. Some people eat uh, all kinds of food. Some people eat only the kosher foods under the Jewish law. And, and that's none of your business. You have enough to worry about between you and God, Paul says in Romans chapter 14. God will judge them and you need to worry about your relationship with God. So why is Paul doing this here? And the answer, it looks like, the reason why Paul makes a stand here is that this is an attempt to re-enslave all the Christians, Jews and Gentiles, back under what had turned into kind of a false interpretation of the law of Moses that the Jews had been living under for many centuries. The law of Moses itself, Paul believes, is a good thing. But sin has kind of done a number on it. And so the system that's been created by the law of Moses has turned into a bad thing now and is standing opposed. And so Paul goes off on Peter, it looks like, because freedom in Christ is at stake. Now, I'm not a historian of American uh, Civil War. I'm not a historian of that period. But those who know inform me that there was a particular moment when the abolitionist movement, at least in the North, kind of moved from more of a fringe movement to the dominant position. It was actually a bill that was passed in Congress in the 1850s, when, in 1850, actually, usually abbreviated as the Fugitive Slave Law. And this was part of a bigger you know, shell game that was going on amongst the southern states and the northern states. But unfortunately, that law bound every U.S. citizen, whether you live in a free state or a slave state, it bound every U.S. citizen to return slaves back to slavery. If they had escaped and you, know, you found out about it, you were bound to send them back home. And historians say that caused a lot of people who were really inclined to obey the laws of the United States to say, well, this law I can't do. And this is one I refuse to obey. And that was one of the things that eventually led to the, the tipping point that became the Civil War, the American Civil War. It was that if people have, have achieved their freedom, I am not going to be part of putting them back into slavery. Well, that's what's going on, I think, in this passage. Paul is on the warpath because he is protecting the freedom that Christians have in Christ. And the lessons we can learn from it, I think, are related to that. He says, when Paul came, I mean, when Peter came to Antioch, or Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they weren't acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it 
that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. The slavery that Paul is talking about is the slavery, first of all, that separates us from people that God loves. Works righteousness locks us away from others. Through the faithfulness of Christ, we are set free to welcome those Christ welcomes. Why does works righteousness do that? This, this system that had developed, I actually, again, I would stress, Paul doesn't think the law was bad. He thinks it was a glorious gift that God gave to the Jews. But the system that sin had kind of done a number on the law and had created in the national life of the Jews had become a real terrible problem. And he says this actually enslaves us. One of the first ways it does it is just what we're seeing right here. Jewish Christians can't fellowship with Gentile Christians. Under this system, it makes Jewish Christians feel like maybe they're doing something wrong if they have fellowship with people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Works righteousness will do that. Works righteousness, whether it crops up in this first century context among the Jews or whether it crops up, crops up among us, works righteousness always puts the focus on what we can do. That's the symptom, I suppose, of works righteousness, is I'm focused almost exclusively on, on the actions I can carry out and the actions my group can carry out. And the more I focus on that, then the more I'm going to find problems with what other people are doing or possibly other groups are doing as well. That's works righteousness when that happens. Now, does God require certain things? Yes, He does. Does God want certain things to be done? Yes, He does. He wouldn't put it in the Bible otherwise. The difference is whether or not what I do, I am doing for Jesus Christ, or I'm doing so I can boast. Paul says that again and again and again. Let me never boast except in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me never boast except in the cross of Christ. Because unfortunately, that's one of the characteristics of works righteousness, is that I begin to look down on those who are doing things somewhat differently than I am. I begin to glorify myself, and I begin to separate myself. Paul... Paul will go on the warpath whenever things begin to separate Christians from one another. He does not want that to happen. He wants us to be together so that together we can be formed in the image of Christ. Anything that threatens that process, Paul will go on the warpath. If you have your Bibles, just, just do me a favor here. This is not in Galatians. Turn over to that Romans 14 passage for me. Chapter 14 of Romans. And you can kind of see where Paul's coming from. Romans chapter 14. Look at verses 19 and 20. And by the way, there are pew Bibles. Right next to the songbooks, there's a pew Bible. So pick that up and turn to Romans chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, 
Turn to Romans chapter 14. Look at verses 19 and 20. This gives us an insight into what Paul is doing and what Paul is saying. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, Paul says. Why is it that Paul goes on the war path in Galatians 2 and he goes on the peace path in Romans 14? Verses 19 and 20 will give you an insight into his thinking. In in Galatians 2, obedience to God was being used as an excuse to separate, to destroy the peace of Christ. In Romans 14, he says... Don't do things that destroy the peace of Christ. The church, I want you to hear clearly what I'm saying this morning. God wants you to be faithful to what He has proclaimed in His Word. He wants us as a church... Not to drift away from that, but to be faithful. But He wants us to do that together with everybody else that Jesus Christ has welcomed. And if you're sensitive, you realize that that is not the reality in which we live. Right now, In this city, people are worshiping in so many different places, in so many different ways. And that is not as it should be. Now, we didn't make this problem last week, so we're not going to solve this problem next week. But brothers and sisters, the peace of Jesus Christ is something that you and I must have in our hearts because I guarantee you it's in God's heart. And what we can do to work towards the peace and the unity that God desires and Jesus Christ desires, we should do. And every step is a step that I believe makes the angels in heaven rejoice. Works righteousness locks us away from others. Through the faithfulness of Christ, we are set free to welcome those that Christ welcomes. Second point. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is one of the things that Paul brings up to make his case to the Galatian Christians. He says, and he's talking about one of his visits to Jerusalem. He said, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't completely on the wrong track, that I wasn't running the race in vain. Uh, and so I went down to Jerusalem and I, and I took Titus with me. Not even Titus, who was with me, verse 3 says, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated, or false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Paul says, Here was the situation, the the demand that arose that all the Gentiles need to be circumcised. Let's start with that guy that Paul brought, Titus. 
that demand arose because people were intent on kind of sidling up and taking away our freedom. I think I've told this story to some of you before. As a high school kid, I was never, not one time, offered drugs. Never was. I think, you know, I, I was kind of a holy Joe in high school, and I think people knew me as a Christian, and, and my reputation was, I mean, there was drugs going on all around me, but I was never offered it. The only time I was ever offered drugs, oddly enough, when I was 18 years old, in Paris, which was weird. I was all alone in Paris for various reasons for about uh, five days. And uh, somebody came up and offered to figure out I was an American or a Canadian or something and, and offered to, to sell me, uh, you know, just marijuana, I suppose. It was interesting, though. I remember the way the person, it was a guy, a little older than me, he came up sideways. He didn't come straight on. He didn't look me really all that much in the eye. He just kind of sidled up to me. That's actually kind of the language that Paul uses to describe what's going on with these brothers, these false brothers. They've kind of snuck in sideways in order to try and re-enslave us. If you've got a good purpose, you don't have to sneak around. If you've got a good purpose, you can say what you mean. But, but if you know something maybe so little off about what you're doing, but you want to get your way anyway, you kind of have to sidle up to it sideways. And that's kind of the language Paul uses to describe the way these people are acting. They kind of sidle I think they were maybe putting pressure on the Jerusalem leadership to say, yeah, Paul brought a total Greek, total pagan, uh, says he's a Christian, but he's never been circumcised, that we need to fix that. And Paul says, the leadership didn't give in to that, and I didn't give in to it. We did not let Titus be circumcised in that circumcise, giving it in that circumstance. Giving in to that pressure would have been the wrong thing to do. What do we learn from that episode? Why were the Jewish Christians so intent on circumcision? This is actually a strange thing I'm going to explore here this morning. There was a joke. Do you remember when the seatbelt laws first came in? You young people don't remember it, but, but older people, we remember. And there was a joke that went around when the seatbelt laws first came in. And sometimes, you know, it was told as if it had happened to a real person. Maybe it did, I don't know. But oftentimes it was just told as a joke. Anyway, this guy who was, a, you know, a talker uh, and, and believed himself capable of sort of charming his way out of any situation, he was speeding. And, uh, and a policeman pulled him over. And, uh, and uh, he realized that the seatbelt law had been... So he really quickly, before the policeman got up there, buckled his seatbelt real fast. And, and the policeman showed up and said, uh, uh, Do you know why I stopped you, sir? And he said, No, I really don't, but I want you to notice my seatbelt is buckled. Yeah, I'm getting to that in a minute, but do you know that you were going 15 miles over the speed limit? 
Uh, it's possible that I was, officer. But do you notice that I have my seatbelt buckled? Yeah, I'm getting to that in a minute. Uh, do you know that, did you know that your right brake light is out? Uh, no, I wasn't aware of that. But do you notice that my seatbelt is buckled? Yeah, I was going to get to that. Do you always buckle it through the steering wheel, sir? <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, okay, fair enough. You're not alone, trust me. So, you know, here's a trick that we sometimes play on ourselves. We're not tricking God, but we sometimes trick ourselves. We think that if I can do one or two things really, really well for God, He'll just let all the other stuff slide. And I don't think anybody's really immune to this. If we really mess up, we have a much stronger urge to, to be there in church, you know? And, and uh, yeah, I've, I've done this to so-and-so. I'm going to say more prayers tonight. That somehow if I can do this thing right, if I can get this little subset right, that God will let everything else slide. In the Old Testament, the prophets complain about this. Isaiah complains about it. Amos complains about it. Oh, you show up and you say, Oh, I love God. Look at the sacrifices I'm bringing. Look at the worship that I'm... Look at the psalms that I'm singing. And meanwhile, your heart is so far away from God. That's what... I think that's actually the diagnosis that Paul is making about why this circumcision controversy has become so sharp and so painful. Is that circumcision has become one of those areas where I can point to and say, well, I've done it, so I'm okay with God. And Paul's point is, if you're going to try and save yourself by works righteousness, you've got to obey the whole law. You can't just pick a few things that are easy for you and say, well, look at me, I'm pretty righteous. You've got to obey it all. If you're going to try and save yourself by works righteousness, that's what you've got to do. Works righteousness, and this is weird. I make these spiritual compromises. And if I'm deep in the process of works righteousness, I kind of require that other people accept the exact same compromises I have accepted. The same parts of the commandments of God that I tend to let slide or ignore, we don't talk about. The parts of the law that I'm already doing and I've, I feel good about myself, those are the ones that I say, God really cares about these. It's one of the sick features of works righteousness. Work righteousness forces us to impose our spiritual compromises on others. If I'm caught up in works righteousness, I'm kind of enslaved to say, well, this is the way we're doing it. And so, if you're not doing it that way, then you're not okay. Through the faithfulness of Christ, Paul's Gospel, I think, says this, through the faithfulness of Christ, we are set free to admit our failures without giving up our efforts to do God's will. I can say that I do not perfectly follow the will of God. 
Because Jesus Christ does. The faithfulness of Christ tells me that I, when I mess up, and I do, when I'm not perfect, and I'm not, Jesus Christ is faithful. And His grace covers me. Now, we preach that truth. We preach that that is true. It is important for us to believe that that's true in our own lives and in the lives of others. Sometimes, and Paul had to fight against this in the first century, and we're probably going to have to struggle against this as, as well. Sometimes people will say, well if, well, if it's the faithfulness of Christ that saves me, then I don't do anything. That's kind of the opposite mistake from works righteousness that says, well, I don't need to do anything. That's not correct either. Paul says because of the faithfulness of Christ, you're set free to, to admit when you fail and to keep doing what God has commanded you to do. Get up when you fail. Dust yourself off. Be honest about what happened and go back to your work to be obedient to what God requires. Last point. Works righteousness tends to blind us to our need for God. Through the faithfulness of Christ, we are set free to do the works that come from Christ living in us. Several times from this pulpit, I've talked about the difference between freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from is no small thing. To be, to be set free from slavery, to be set free from oppression, to be set free from rigged political systems, those are good things. Those are accomplishments. And, and, and when a culture has accomplished those things, they're worth protecting. Freedom from. In our culture, though, that's, that's almost the only definition of freedom that we uh, can still form very well. Freedom from. What's the purpose of freedom? I don't know. Just to be free, I guess. Well, what's it for? It would just be yourself. Freedom from just says let's remove all restraints. Why do you need to be free? I don't know. Just to be free. That's freedom from. And, and that will give us wrong results on several different areas. The freedom from culture doesn't understand that the point of freedom is to be able to do good things. To do righteous things. To do things that make us more in the image of God. The freedom from culture misunderstands that. I know people who aren't married who say, I don't know, I, I don't think I want to give up my freedom. And those of us who are married say, well, you're giving up a lesser kind of freedom, in my opinion, to have a greater kind of opinion. I know people who say, I don't want to give up my freedom by having kids. Now, not everybody is meant to be married. Not everybody's meant to have kids. But let me tell you something. There is a freedom in having kids. 
that is astonishingly wonderful. And the freedom from culture can't quite understand that. And most of all, I hear people say, well, I just, I don't want to give up my freedom by being a Christian. And again, I don't think people understand that once you come into the Christian fold, you are set free to do things that you would never be able to do living in your flesh. Look down in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, there at the bottom of your study sheet. I have, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Works righteousness blinds our eyes to our need for God. Through the faithfulness of Christ, we are set free to do the works that come from Christ living in us. What is the standard of righteousness for you? It isn't how righteous you can be in your own power. It's how much of Jesus can be expressed in your life. Your life is different than my life. Our lives are different from someone else's life. How much can Jesus be expressed in your life? You remember the old, what would Jesus do bracelets? Yeah. That was actually a really good movement. That's simple, but it's powerful. What would Jesus do? Because your purpose, the standard of your righteousness now in Jesus Christ is to let Jesus live through you. In your specific situation, dealing with the people that, are, that God has put in your life, given with, give, dealing with the opportunities that God has provided for you, what would Jesus do? But there's a deeper step. If you let the Holy Spirit work in you, there comes a time that question, what would Jesus do? More and more, you don't even have to ask it. What the Holy Spirit has in, in mind for you, believe me or not, but this is the truth. What the Holy Spirit has in mind for you, what the Holy Spirit has in mind for me, is that in more and more aspects of your life, it just becomes automatic that Jesus Christ lives in you. Works righteousness keeps my eyes focused here on what I can do, my own pinched little reality. I can turn Christianity into a system of works righteousness just as easily as I can turn, as it was possible to turn Judaism into a system of works righteousness. And it keeps me focused right here. And therefore, it keeps me from realizing that every day I need to ask for God's grace to take me farther than He took me yesterday. Every day I need to wake up and say, today I need your power. 
I need your blessing in my life. I need you to guard me from temptation. Keep me away from the evil one and lead me so that I can do your will on earth as it is in heaven. Day by day. That Jesus Christ can actually live through me. You want to be righteous? You're never going to do it by works righteousness. You're going to just end in despair or smugness, one of those two paths. But if you want to be actually righteous, Paul says, let Jesus Christ be formed in you. And that's the gospel that he is preaching. That's the gospel that he feels is under threat in Galatians chapter 2. And that's why he stands up to protect our freedom today. Let's continue to protect our freedom in Jesus Christ. Let's turn our eyes where they belong to God, to the power that God provides in our lives. Let's turn our eyes to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in fulfilling God's will and in working through us if we'll let Him so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's enjoy the freedom in Christ that Jesus has given us. If you need to respond to the invitation, if you need baptism today or if you need prayers of some kind, then why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.